Our morning text is from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 through 9. And you will find this text in your pew Bible on page 879. Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9. I invite you to follow along as I read. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? For the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. May God add his blessing to his word. Amen. This Sunday and next Sunday, we'll try to work our way through the rest of Isaiah 53. We began two Sundays ago before... Moshe Rosen was here. And you remember it began back in chapter 52, verse 13, with the words, Behold, my servant will prosper. And so it's sometimes called a servant song. And we talked about who the servant was two weeks ago, and we said the servant is not Isaiah, and the servant is not the people of Israel, because we know from verses 4 and others that the servant is serving Isaiah and the people of Israel. He says things like, uh, he was wounded, this servant was wounded for our transgressions. The our being me, Isaiah, and the other people of God. And so the servant is not the people, the servant is not Isaiah, the servant is a figure that is coming onto the scene at some unknown time who is going to do a substitutionary, ransoming, vicarious, suffering, dying, and we'll see next week, even from this text, rising work of salvation for Isaiah and for the people of God all through history. Isaiah doesn't know much about him, but he knows something. We saw five things that he knew two weeks ago. We saw two weeks ago five things that he knew. One... He knows that we are all rebel subjects. Verse 6, we've all gone astray. He knows, number two, that God is sending his servant and this servant's going to be rejected by the rebel subjects. Number three, he knows that the rejection is success, not failure. That rejection will become a ransom and a substitute for the people of God. And he knows, fourthly, that the nations and the kings hadn't seen it, hadn't understood it. They were blind and their eyes are going to be opened when the servant sprinkles them, according to chapter 52, 15. And fifthly, he knows that the servant will be high and lifted up and very exalted and the mouths of the kings of the earth will be stopped. And there will be a reverent silence. That much he knows. We saw that two weeks ago. We called it salvation or um, revelation and 
validation. Revelation, because you can't know those things unless it's revealed from God. And validation, because they were revealed 700 years before they happened. And so there's a validation in the sheer fact that we learn them 700 years before they were fulfilled. Now, today, we move three verses farther. Two weeks ago, we went from 52.13 to 53.6. Today, we move from 53.7 to 53.9. Next week, we finish the chapter, Lord willing. And in these three verses today, we see the suffering of the servant and his response to his suffering. We see the death of the servant and the response of his generation to his death. And we see the burial of the servant and a strange, hopeful twist put by God on this burial. Now, before I I take each of those verses one at a time, I want to ask you a question and try to set this message in the context of a one-week-old season called spring. Did you know that spring is one week old? It is one week old. And every time spring comes, Lent comes. And I sometimes wonder, Dean, if, if God did it right. Because, I don't wonder too long. Because spring is a time when the flowers, at least you start to dream about them. And the sun comes out and it starts to get warm. And it's happy. And that awful February Minnesota oppression looks like it begins to lift. And it doesn't feel like the time for Lent. Suffering, death, burial. And it may be that you are just full of expectations this spring season. Maybe you're ready to start your garden. Maybe you're still all worked up about the boys' Minnesota State basketball title. Or maybe you're all worked up about the deluge of NCAA games. Or maybe you want softball season to get started. Or maybe the golf courses to dry off. Or Maybe you want to get out on the road with your bike so that there's wind in the face and you don't just drip on the floor of your study with no wind while you're biking. Or maybe you want one of those late night walks together with somebody special without frostbite. (laughs) It's a good season. It's a happy season. It's meant to create a sense of expectation and hope the way God designed it, I believe. So why talk about Suffering and death and burial. The answer is an answer that takes some maturity to appreciate. The older you are, I predict, the more quickly your heart will say yes to my answer. My answer is springtime doesn't last. Springtime in this age is very temporary. And you will feel very destitute in the winter's night of your soul and your life if all I give you is a springtime Christ. 
I could give you a chipper, happy-go-lucky, buddy, pal, chum of a Christ this morning. And uh, I could tell you that his main mission is to cheer you on and make your springtime excitements better and better. And then maybe we'd have a, a brighter service and it would be more chipper. It could do that. One of the reasons I don't feel inclined even to turn it that way is because the TV and the radio and the advertising industry have beat me to it and would do it a lot better than I could do it anyway. Their whole mission is to make you feel chipper, upbeat, sunny, successful, comfortable, leisurely, sporty, smiley, fun people all the time. And I could chip in there and, and, and make it theological. I really could. I could say, look, Jesus invented all these leisures. He knows how to play softball. He knows how to rollerblade and bike and surf and garden better than anybody in the universe. So get with it with Jesus and let's do it. I could say that. It, it wouldn't be false. It really wouldn't be. It's just not what I feel called to do with my life. I want to devote my life not to enhancing your springtime excitements, but to help you survive the winter. And not only survive it, but thrive in it. Maybe even see flowers grow up in the winter times of your life. I went to... A Wolves game on Friday night. First time I've ever been to a professional basketball game. I've seen a lot of basketball, but I've never seen guerrilla basketball. I thought hockey players were. But what amazed me about this event over at the Target Center was that it was an event. This is not just a basketball game. When you go to a basketball game at the Target Center, you go to an event. I mean, you're talking entertainment, lights, Sound, prizes dropping out of the sky. <laughs> Anything to communicate, be happy, be cheerful. Don't leave this event tonight unhappy or you might not come back at 32.50 a shot. <laughs> Our tickets were free. Thank you, Rod. <laughs> I got the message there that there is an industry... And there is a force out there that is devoting their whole energies to making you chipper, happy, fun people and to satisfying your craving for entertainment. I don't need to help in that, frankly. And I looked around that 15,000 people or so and, and thought, how many of these people are ready for the winter of their life? One of the reasons I feel so called to make it my ministry to help you get ready for the winters is because I know they're coming. Health winters are coming. Marriage winters are coming or single winters. Parenting winters are coming. Vocational winters are coming. And one final winter of death is coming. And in those winters, you are not going to want a chipper, sunny, smiley, buddy chum pal of a Christ. You're going to want a Christ who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief.
And you are going to want pastors who know better how to weep than how to laugh. And you are going to want a hope that is not easy, breezy, smiley, toothy TV hope. You are going to want substantial, solid, deep, granite, unshakable, God-guaranteed hope in the face of utter blackness. I know that. And therefore, I'm happy to fall into the background during the springtime. I'm happy to sit there because I know that when the winter comes, I've got a message. I've got an awesome message for people in the winter. Now, I happen to believe it makes the springtime brighter, too. But I believe that follows so naturally as the, ni- as the day that the night when you get your winter taken care of that I don't need to work real hard to push your springtime buttons. Everybody in the world is doing that. And very few are devoting their lives to help you in the winter when all around your soul gives way. Then he is all your hope and stay. My Ministry is to help you believe that and to live in it. That hope is rooted right here in verses 7, 8, and 9, the suffering, the death, and the burial of the servant of the Lord. And so I would like now to turn and take these verses one at a time and move through them. Verse 7, the suffering of the servant. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. I see four things that happened to the servant here, and I see three statements of how he responded. Number one, he was oppressed. That word is used in the Old Testament for what taskmasters, slave masters did to their slave, made them make brick without straw, used the the whip on them, oppressed them, made them feel stressed out and burdened and pressured and boxed in. Jesus had that kind of experience all of his ministry as his enemies stalked him continually, lurked, waited, sought ways to get at him and then captured him and tormented him in the last week of his life. Secondly, he was afflicted. The word implies being low, being humiliated, being shamed and belittled and scorned and made jest of mockery, ridicule, derision. Jesus sipped that cup, his whole ministry, and then had it forced down his throat during the last week of his life. He was afflicted. Third, He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He wasn't slaughtered in verse 7. He was led to the slaughter. The slaughter comes in verse 8. And being led to the slaughter is bad enough. You know, it's, it's one thing to be in prison and in custody and be experiencing horrible, horrible tortures and terrible things. If you can say in the back of your mind, it's almost over. I'm going to get out of jail and it's going to be spring. And it's another thing to be in jail And to lie there and know it's moving towards the cross. It's moving towards slaughter. There was no springtime for Jesus anymore before the resurrection. He'd seen his last one until the resurrection. And you will go through your last spring. This may be it for a dozen of you. Or more. Probably more. 
in a church this size. Fourth, he was sheared. Like a sheep before its shearers. He was stripped. His clothes were taken from him. His friends left him. His honor was stripped away. His divine protection was stripped away. And he hung there in utter degradation and humiliation, naked, sheared. There's a lot of nakedness in the world today. And I was just thinking about the difference between the nakedness of the shearing of Jesus with the nakedness of contemporary pornographic American society. And one of the differences is that Jesus' nakedness was all weakness, all degradation, all humiliation, as though you women were, this morning we were to just shave you all bald, and make you go out and not let you wear wigs, just kind of... Just but the nakedness today is power. It's the use of power over weak men. I say that as an exhortation to weak men to get strong and to shut your eyes. Even at Wolves games. But Jesus was naked, sheared like a sheep. And he responded, how? He didn't open his mouth. Three times it says that. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent. So he did not open his mouth. His response was amazing, patient, quiet silence. Early in the morning, one, two o'clock, he's at Caiaphas' house with his rump court, the Sanhedrin. False witnesses are brought against him and Caiaphas, the high priest, says, Do you make no answer? What is this that these men are testifying against you? And Matthew says, And Jesus was silent. Later in the morning, Pilate, the praetorian guard, Do you make no answer? See how many charges they bring against you? And Mark comments, And Jesus made no further Answer so that Pilate was amazed. An hour or so later, he's with Herod, who was in town on a visit, who wanted to see him do some miracle and taunted him. And Luke says, question him at some length and then comments, but he answered him nothing. Why? Answer. He knew his calling. He knew his prophecy. He was the servant of the Lord. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the fulfillment of Isaiah 57, 53, 7. And therefore, he didn't open his mouth. Peter says, when he was reviled, didn't revile back. And he was threatened. When he was suffering, he didn't threaten. But he handed over to him who judges justly. God, which is exactly what we have to do. When we are mistreated, we hand over our case to him who will settle accounts 
far better than we by our grudges, bitterness and retaliation could ever settle accounts with our children, with our wives, with our fellow workers, with our enemies. Hand it over to the Lord and close your mouth. Secondly, he died. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, there it is, he died. He's cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. So he didn't just get led to the slaughter. He went all the way. He was slaughtered. And here it makes clear as the lamb-like. Reality of verse 7 implied here, it's stated explicitly, he was slaughtered not for his own transgressions, but for the transgressions of his people. Now, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God and the gospel of Bethlehem Baptist Church and all the evangelical churches around the world. The gospel is, as Paul sums it up in 1 Corinthians 15:3, Christ died for our sin. According to the scriptures, three statements, Christ died. He was cut off out of the land of the living for our sins, for the transgression of his people. According to the scriptures, that is Isaiah 53, 8. Paul learned his gospel from Isaiah. He learned it from Jesus. He received it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was cut off. Now, what was the response of his generation? Your versions, I know some of them are different here. I don't think the NIV gets it right here. I don't think generation means his descendants. I don't think consider means speak. Neither do most scholars. I don't know why they chose that untraditional translation, which I think misses the point. Who considered out of this generation... The word considered, I looked them all up. Every place this Hebrew word occurs in the Old Testament, the main meaning of this Hebrew word is meditate, muse, ponder. It doesn't, he's not saying, who saw this? Like he was in chapter 53, verse 1. Who has known this? He's saying, who in his generation, seeing what was happening, thought about it, pondered it, considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, not for his own criminality, but for the transgressions of his people. Who pondered that? Who stopped in a midnight moment of silence and said, could that be? What have we done? And the answer was hardly anybody did that. It's an indictment on superficiality. It's an indictment on radio and TV addiction. Our generation, probably more than any generation in human history, has a difficult time meditating, pondering, musing, reflecting, studying, not just seeing the great things of life, but then turning into our closets or taking the quiet walk, turning the radio off, turning the TV off, and asking, Lord, What about this? And how does it relate to me? And what difference would it make if I really believed it at work? And how might it affect my marriage? And 
what we're supposed to get out of verse 8 at this juncture, I believe, is an admonition from Isaiah to us not to fall prey to the indictment that the generation of Jesus fell prey to. Namely, a failure to consider what was really happening. A failure to think, a failure to ponder, a failure to meditate, a failure to muse. You read the Psalms. Read the Psalms. How does the psalmist get himself out of the pits again and again and again? I waited upon the Lord. I mused. I reflected on His mighty deeds. How many of us do that? What's the first thing that happens in the morning? The radio comes on. Do you ever turn it off till you go? Why not reach over and turn it off right away? And make a 15-minute moment of solitude in which you consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living. I'm not saying read four chapters and you know, get your progress made in the Bible reading. I'm talking be alone in quiet with a soul communion with God that asks what mighty difference this mighty act might make in your very brief springtime before the winter comes. One last verse and short. He was buried. And it goes like this. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had no violence. He had done no violence. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Now I know that the versions are, are different there too in part. So let me try to make the point broadly enough so that it might be seen in in perhaps all the versions. The remarkable thing in this verse, the thing that, that gives a hopeful twist to the burial, is that while on the one hand, Jesus is somehow mixed up with the wicked in his dying, we know what that is, he's got a thief on either side, and you expect that here, here he is, he's in the middle, he must be the worst of all. These three criminals, they're going to die. And what do you do with criminals when they die? You, you throw them out to the vultures, maybe, or you give them some real cheap, lousy, no good pit of a grave somewhere where nobody ever goes by. And so that's the way it's going to be with, with Jesus, the servant of the Lord. And then comes this phrase, and with a rich man. And it is singular. Just to say the rich is misleading in the versions. It's singular. With a rich man in his death. And I'm sure when Isaiah got that from the Lord, he thought... <laughs> that's, what, that's what 1 Peter says he did. 1 Peter 1.11 says they scratched their heads trying to figure out what sort of person or time this was going to be. He said, what is, how is that going to work? He's with the wicked in his grave and he's going to be with the, a rich man and... And then we read Matthew 27:57 There came a man a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus and Joseph took the body and laid it in his own new tomb <laughs> Now I stand back from that and I say why did God do that? Why did He set it up this way? Why did He count 
the burial place with a rich disciple as so significant that he would predict it in a holy, sacred, beautiful prophecy 700 years early. What? Why, why is that? What's the point? Here's my suggestion. I think what God is saying 700 years before and in the event is this. When my son died on the cross, and just before that, let the words go, it is finished. It was finished. And I don't need to humiliate him anymore. In fact, now that it's finished, my eyes are running to and fro all over Jerusalem for ways I can honor my son. And I'll bring these women. If those disciples run, I'll bring these women. I'll fill him with compassion and they'll wrap him up and they'll pour on this ointment. And I'll find this, this new disciple, Joseph of Arimathea. Nobody ever know who he was. I will put it in his heart to have the courage to risk his life to go to Pilate and say, can I have the body? And I will put it in Pilate's heart to say, I didn't think he was dead yet. He's dead. Okay, you can have the body. And I will put it in Joseph's heart to give him his whole, rich, new tomb for my son because it is finished. That's what I think was happening. I think it was the Father's way to say the exaltation of Jesus is already beginning. It didn't just begin when he broke out of the tomb, which we'll celebrate in two weeks and blow the lid off here. It began when it was finished with the tears of the women and their readiness to receive Him in honor and love, and with Joseph giving a new honorable burial to the Son of God who had done the work so well. So now in a minute you're going to walk out into springtime, okay? And it's alright, I'm in favor of spring, I love spring. I like basketball, I play here twice a week on Tuesday and Friday morning if you want to come reject Pastor John. But listen, it isn't going to last. Spring is going to fail. And the winter of your life is going to come. Some of them are short. The last one will be decisive. And I want you, as you go out, even in the springtime, to remember he suffered like a lamb. He died for your transgressions. And he got an honorable burial from his father because the work was finished. And if spring fails, he won't. Let's pray. Lord, you are very great. There is none like you. And Dan was right when he prayed that we want to honor you by asking you that we would become like you. That's the tribute we want to pay to you. Help us to keep our mouths shut and not revile in return. Help us to receive the gift of substitutionary atonement for our sins. Help us to glory in the finished work of your Son, Father. 
Dismiss us out into spring and grant that some right now are experiencing springtime life in their heart for the first time. Grant that some are feeling a healing touch, Lord, upon the sicknesses of their bodies right now. Grant that the prayer teams here at the front would be filled with the Holy Spirit and with gifts to pray for those who feel a need rising for prayer. Lord, I believe the sunshine will be brighter because we're prepared now by your grace to thrive and survive in the winter. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.